0: Hello, and welcome to another off-season edition of the 66 to 87 podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. Uh, I am Tom Reed, uh, joined again today by Dave Molinari, uh, Taylor Haas finishing up her week-long vacation. Uh, we will be joined a little bit later in our program uh, by the voice of the Lightning, uh, the television analyst of the Lightning, longtime. NHL broadcaster as well, uh, Brian Englong, who will will take a look at what may have been an unexpected Game 7 given the way Game 5 went and certainly the way things were starting out in Game 6, but sure enough, we will have a Game 7. Uh, but before that, let's get to some Penguin stuff. Obviously, it's been a kind of a quiet last couple of weeks, but our Dave Molinari uh, had a chance to to have a one-on-one interview with uh, Ron Hextall, uh, the team's general manager. And Dave, in reading that uh, nice piece you had, uh, the, the, the thing that I took away from it more than anything, and it's not something you wrote or predicted, but just in reading the tea leaves there, uh, it could be kind of a quiet summer as far as player acquisition when you look at the fact they, they don't have a ton of draft picks. Uh, I think a second, a fifth, and three sevenths. Uh, they're kind of pressed up against the cap as a lot of teams are. And then in listening to Hextall, I thought it was very interesting in what he was saying about some meetings. Uh, the guys like to get the GMs decision makers like to get together face to face and what normally they would during the Stanley cup finals that has been, uh, canceled. Um, what was your takeaways in in talking, in talking with Hextall?
1: Well, I I mean, I don't know that I reached any conclusions about how busy it will be. I I think he will explore a lot of possibilities for personnel moves this summer. Um, He acknowledged that it will be a hindrance to not only not have the GM meeting, uh, face-to-face meeting that normally is held during the Stanley Cup final, but also the fact that the uh, draft will be done remotely again this year, and, and thus you won't have the, you know, face-to-face interaction with other GMs that that you would in a normal year. You know, being able to talk to a potential trading partner in person, you know, obviously it makes makes it easier to uh, to get a deal done. But I don't think that ultimately that will be a uh, a hurdle that that Hextall or or any other GM will be unable to overcome.
0: uh, But but, but part of that, too, at least as far as uh, one of the things that get thrown into the mix this year, and Hextall mentioned this, I think in his interview with you, is teams may not want to make any moves prior to the expansion draft to see, uh, you know, the last thing you want to do is trade for a player, and then somehow either that player or a player you wanted to protect you have to move down in the pecking order, uh, so would it be fair to think that we probably aren't going to see a whole lot of activity prior to uh, the the Kraken getting their uh, the, the players that they're going to get the expansion draft?
1: No, I mean that that would make sense. Um, something people should keep in mind is that the NHL is not on a normal calendar this year. Right. You know, in a non-pandemic year the draft probably would have been this coming weekend, uh, you know, started Friday and Saturday, and the expansion draft likely would have been held a week ago. Instead, those things are are basically coming on, you know, a month later. And so there will be a condensed period uh, for free agency and, you know, off-season trades and that sort of thing, but I don't think that will preclude getting them done. But back to your original point, I wouldn't anticipate a whole lot of uh, movement before the, you know, before the expansion draft. Just because, as Hextall and you noted, you don't want to bring in a guy and then not protect him and and have him end up playing in Seattle next year.
0: Uh, the, the other, uh, major talking point of that story, uh, was that, that Hextall and well, just management in general have not gotten to their final list of players they want to protect. Uh, do you buy that? Uh, I mean, I, obviously the, the, you know, the, Ron Hextall can tell you whatever he wants. Uh, they've had more than, you know, coming up on two months here, uh, since the end of the season, maybe, maybe a little bit less, but uh, do you really think that they're, they're struggling with maybe one or two guys? And, And if so,
1: who do you think those might be? I mean, I, I don't know that struggling is, is the word I would use, but I could see where there could be some, some ongoing back and forth. You know, they, they don't have to submit their list for nearly a month. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there, there's no reason to have it, you know, uh, etched in stone just yet. You know, um, there's a, a handful of players that you you could make a case for protecting, or that you could see going unprotected. You know, Zach Aston Reese, Teddy Bluger, Brandon yep. Tanev, uh possibly Jared McCann. Uh, you know, and I could see people. On Hextall's staff, maybe having conflicting opinions, you know that that they haven't reached a consensus on the seven forwards and three defensemen. Although I, th- I think the three defensemen are probably a relatively easy call, but you know you could uh, make an argument for a number of, uh, of forwards, depending on exactly what kind of team they they want in the future who they think they might be able to acquire uh via a trade or free agency you know that uh that could influence a guy that they might expose so no i i, I don't know that he was uh being mis- misleading or or disingenuous wh- when he suggested that you know there there is you know the the list is is not completely finalized just yet sure um, uh,
0: one name that's interesting, and, and I've seen this rep- thrown out there and in, in, not on our site, but uh, some other people, and it, it is, I just wanted to get into this just a little bit. It, wh- what do you do with Jeff Carter? Uh, and here's the reason I bring Jeff Carter's name up and you think, well, my God, 36 years old, what would a expansion franchise want with a 36 year old? Here would be my thinking, and I'm not saying I would do this if I was Ron Francis, but if I'm trying to maximize my assets, uh, could there be a line of thinking that if you took Jeff Carter and he was willing to play, I think the one thing I, you'd be scared of is is him saying, "I'm I, I'm not, I'll just retire. I, I wanted to play for a winner." But say he goes along with this, and Jeff Carter is decent again in the regular season, I could see the Kraken taking him and saying, "We can flip this guy for a." maybe a second-round draft pick or a a higher draft pick uh, to a contending team at the trade deadline. Where are you with Jeff Carter as far as protecting him?
1: I probably would not protect him. The the point you raised is uh, quite valid. I could also see uh, the Kraken claiming him if they thought that he could help them to establish the kind of culture that they want there. Sure, absolutely. you know, wh- whether Ron Francis would see it that way, you know, I, I really can't say. Uh, but I, I would be, if, if I were Ron Hextall, I would be willing to take that chance um, and, you know, ha- ha- with the the payoff of being able to protect a younger player who might fit into my plans uh, longer than, than Jeff Carter, who even... If he is with the Penguins next season, you know, there's certainly no guarantee that he will want to continue to play uh, beyond the the expiration of his contract in 2022 or that the Penguins will want him to play. You know, everybody hits a wall eventually and and you don't always get, you know, a six month warning that it's coming. So, Uh, you know, it, exposing him would be a gamble, but at this point, if I were the Penguins, it, it's one that I probably would be willing to
2: take.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I also wonder, too, if, if Jeff Carter would would use play the card, look, if you take me, I'm, I'm retiring. I, I think Jeff Carter, uh, in listening to his comments at the end of the season, uh, he does seem like he's all in here, and he certainly played like he – is all in here, and I don't think in the last year of his career, if 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 indeed this is the last season that he's going to want to now. Of course, we saw what happened with the Golden Knights, but uh, you know, unless something crazy like that again happens, I can't see him wanting to play his final season on an expansion team. So I'm with you. I think uh, it's worth the risk. So David, kind of the. I said well the bottom of the lineup of the forwards right now where are you leaning who are you willing to who do you think you would be willing to expose there
1: um i mean that that's really tough and, and you know part of it would be influenced by uh, or at least possibly would be influenced by who i thought other teams might expose and i mean you have you have to remember that Ron Francis is not going to make selections based simply on, on, you know, the most talented player that each team makes available to him. He's going to build a team. He's going to be looking for people to fill specific roles, you know, particular niches, um, you know. So you have to try to take that into account. If you if you're Ron Hextall, you have to kind of try to get inside of Ron Francis's head Um, I would probably be willing to expose uh, Jason Zucker. I think he's a good player. Um, I don't think he has shown in his time in Pittsburgh that he's able to produce to uh, a level commensurate with the salary cap space that he takes up. And in his case, it's certainly not a lack of effort or commitment or anything like that. He just hasn't... uh, Produced to the, the level I expect, you know, a guy w- would have a tough call on. Uh, could be Jared McCann, uh, yeah. who if you expose him, I could see him being quite attractive to Seattle, and he you know he's a guy that the Penguins w- would like to keep, but I don't know that I would protect him at the expense of, of using of losing a uh, say a Brandon Tanev. Uh, who, who I think is is really one of the driving forces for this team, or even a, a Teddy Bluger, who I think can uh, can fill a valuable bottom six role here for, for a lot of years. Um, you know, the the Penguins uh, I, I think have uh, pretty much accepted the idea that they're going to lose a good player, and you know, whoever it is. Uh, There will certainly be some second guessing of the of the decision to expose that particular player. But, you know, that that's part of the business, uh, having your decisions second guessed by by people on the outside. Sure. Uh, I would be surprised if if they expose TANF. And the reason
0: I say that is because. Uh, the, the talk about wanting more tenacity and more grit and more, a little bit. Size doesn't fit in, but let's be honest, he plays a lot bigger than his size. He seems to be more of what they want. And if you lose TANF, then you're going to have to not only keep filling in those spots, but then you're going to have to replace a big part of what you already have. But let's Let's move along. Uh, you know, every every show here in the offseason, we we're kind of looking at one player, a little player evaluation of the season. Uh, today, we we come to Brian Dumoulin, Dave. Uh, 41 games, uh, four goals, 10 assists, 14 points. Again, he's not noted for his offense, uh, plus minus of 18. Uh, did not start the season, but once he got in, uh, they, that's when that the team really seemed to take off, and it really seemed to stabilize his partner, uh, uh, Chris Latang. I, I want to get your thoughts on his regular season.
1: Well, that, I mean, that's his greatest value to the Penguins is that he allows Chris Latang to be Chris Latang, um, because Latang can take some chances offensively and, and get involved in the offense to a level that he wouldn't be able to if he didn't have a partner who was so Defensively responsible and effective as Dumoulin is, um, you know, Dumoulin doesn't earn his seven-figure salary on, on the basis of the goals he scores or, or sets up. He he's there uh, primarily because of his work in his own end, and you know, I don't think he has to uh, be embarrassed when he cashes his paycheck. He he earns it.
0: Yeah, and obviously, uh, we, you you alluded to the the three people that you're protecting, got to be one of them, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You
1: know that's he that that's a given. A, you know you. Well, they they can't expose Latang unless Latang would go along with it. But if you're going to expose Dumoulin, you might as well put Latang out there too because <laughs> without a partner like Dumoulin, I I think you really detract from from letang's value to the penguins All uh, you know, all right they're, just, they're, they're kind of a package deal sure
0: all right just getting started here we'll be back with the roundtable in segment two and a little bit later uh we'll hear from uh lightning uh television analyst brian engbaum so stick with us here on the 66 to 87 podcast Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast. Uh, We're now hit our roundtable segment. And as we mentioned, we've mentioned many times, it seems like in the last couple of months since the new management team came in, uh, Ron Hextall and Brian Burke would like to add some maybe some size and some grit or tenacity, whatever way you want to phrase it to this lineup going forward, if they can. Uh, if the the moves are available, if the money is available. And Dave, I'm wondering, when you look at the success, probably unexpected success, of the New York Islanders uh, to force a Game 7, we're recording this on a Thursday, and the Montreal Canadiens, who, as of recording, had a chance to eliminate uh, the heavily favored uh, Golden Knights, I'm wondering, does this kind of reinforce their thoughts about what they knew, what they would like to add a little bit into their lineup, given certainly with the Islanders, the way they play? And I think the Canadians are kind of like the Islanders' light. They're not quite as... Uh, heavy of a team, but they certainly play with defensive structure, and really rely on a lot of tenacity. Do you think when they look at the way these team teams are playing, you see, yes, we're we're on the right track with kind of way things are going here?
1: Um, honestly, I, I don't know that they they needed to have any sort of uh, yeah. affirmation that that the Penguins need to to get bigger and tougher. I you know whether you know whether the the islanders and Canadians had the success that they have, I really don't think should influence what what the penguins ap- approach is I, you know it's It's not as if Hextall and Burke have staked out a controversial position here you know they're they're not doing anything to go against uh, logic. So, you know, I, I don't know that, that they really needed any, any validation. And frankly, if the Penguins had gotten the kind of goaltending that Carey Price has given Montreal and, and that Ilya Sorokin and Semyon Varlanov have, have given the Islanders for most of these playoffs, there's a pretty good chance the Penguins would still be playing despite uh, their relative lack of, of size and, you know, modest toughness level.
0: Yeah, and, and again, I I, I always I, I caution people every time we talk about this as far as toughness, we're not talking about guys uh, dropping gloves and fighting. It, it's more of just uh, having the, the 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 willingness to play as much with will as skill. And both of those teams have that in spades. I am, and we'll, we'll get into with Brian Englong a little bit about this a little bit later. But I am really surprised at how well the Canadians have held up against the Golden Knights, who, when you look at that roster and you look at the way that they've played previous in these playoffs, can play it any way you want. And as you mentioned, Kerry Price has been very good. But, Dave, I think the Canadians have probably outplayed them in four of the five games. I mean, they've been the better team. And, and as the series has gone on, Vegas has found it harder and harder to get quality chances. And again, uh, it's great to have Carey Price back there who erases some of those big chances that the Golden Knights have had, but they have struggled uh, to really create a lot of chances.
1: Oh, they they have, and I mean, that really is a credit to the Canadiens. They have played... Their defensive structure and ferocity has just been incredible. Uh, yeah, try it's easier to get through a minefield than, than than to get through the neutral zone against that team. They're just yeah. um, they just make you fight for every inch you get. I and I can't imagine uh, you know the the physical toll that it that it takes on the Canadians just to to play w- with that level of commitment. You know, every shift all over the ice. It just has to be incredibly draining. But, you know, the fact that as we speak, they're one victory away from uh, going to the Stanley Cup final, you know, shows that the, the effort has certainly been worth it.
0: Yeah, and, 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 and give them credit. They, they, they do have some guys that probably flew under the radar as far as there's some skill there. Nick Suzuki seems to be making plays every game. Cole Caulfield, who certainly is no one's idea of a big player, as as he's as he's gotten into the playoffs and played more seems to be making a couple of big plays a game and but but to their size the guy that really has impressed me as this series has gone along is Josh Anderson a guy that I would have loved to see the Penguins Uh, they probably uh, the the Blue Jackets probably would have never traded within the division even though they weren't in the division this year but that's to me the type of guy that that probably has Brian Burke and and Ron Hextel, like, oh my God, if we could land that type of player because he is so effective in the playoffs.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's been the, the player that the Canadians, uh, thought and hoped that they, they were acquiring from Columbus. He's, uh, you know, a big guy who can play that's, you know, that's, that's the prototype that, uh, that the Penguins are looking for. Uh, Dave, uh, getting
0: back to a second from our first segment with with Kraken they made news uh this week that they, they hired dave hackstall the former flyers uh coach and uh if i'm correct uh, was north Dakota's uh a former coach uh thinking that my, my guess here is that younger you know work with a younger roster that's probably going to be uh just your were you surprised that that, that hackstall was the, the choice there
1: I was surprised only because it's it's not a name that had been circulating at all. I mean Ron Francis did a <laughs> a really good job of of keeping uh things under cover during his coaching search, you know. Heard a few names that uh of of guys that were considered, but for the most part the the, the process uh flew under the radar. Uh Hackstall, you know, didn't have the success that was expected in Philadelphia uh, and then ended up uh, in the spent the past season as an assistant in Toronto. Uh, I will defer to Ron Francis's judgment on him. And if Haxtell does uh, prove to be a successful coach uh, in Seattle, he will not be the first guy who struggled in his initial Head coaching job, and uh, <laughs> and then went on to do very well. In fact, there's a guy in Pittsburgh <laughs> named Mike Sullivan yep. who kind of, who went down that very path. So, uh, yes, I, I I was surprised, but I don't know that that means that uh, it was not a good hire.
0: Bigger surprise: Dave Haxtall being named coach of the Kraken, or the fact that uh, former Penguin. Rick Tockett is still on the market. I I thought Rick Tockett did a nice job in Arizona, and I thought for sure he would be one of these guys that got a job. Now, I I don't think – correct me if I'm right, but has Buffalo made their move on Granada? Are they keeping
1: Granada? Where are they in that that, that, uh, search? I don't believe that there has been anything finalized there, Um, but – you know the the only uncertainty now is in Buffalo and in Arizona, and I'm not sure that the coyotes will be hiring uh, <laughs> no. talkit back uh, so you know giv- given that it seems like a, a pretty good chance that Granado will get that job in Buffalo, you could certainly make a case that that he earned it the opportunity to do it you know talkit might uh, be on the market for a while here. You know, and,
0: and I don't know if that is necessarily a bad thing. Usually when you're there's a coaching search, that means the team is either not performing very well or has really underachieved. Whereas sometimes, and the Penguins have a history of winning Stanley Cups with uh, guys brought in mid-season, not saying that that's going to happen here next year. But what I'm saying is sometimes, If teams have slow starts, and we see this every season, Dave, uh, teams, Montreal. Montreal's a perfect example this season. Got rid of their coach right away uh, at the beginning of the year, and everyone's like, what are you doing? They they fired, was it Claude Julien, right? Yep. Just like weeks into the season. And sure enough, here they are, as we said, one game potentially from going to the final. Uh, That could be an advantageous position for
1: Rick Tockett, if that's the case. It could be. I mean, I thought that he would be a real nice fit in New York. I thought he was the Definitely. kind of guy that uh, that could really, you know, install some of the some of the fire that I think the Rangers would uh, benefit from. You know, in, in that regard, they're they're kind of like the Penguins. Um, I, I think they could use some size and grit there, and uh, talk it, you know. Embodied that as a player, and, and he hasn't lost that to, as a coach. But you know, I, I don't think we have to worry about him joining. The, you know, the long term unemployed. No. Uh, you know, something will come along for him, even if it doesn't during this off season.
0: Yeah, I would not. I would. If I'm Rick talking, I'm not taking an assistant's job anywhere because I think he will be one of those guys again, assuming. Buffalo goes with keeps Don Granado and and he did it not really did he to his to his credit he did a nice job, uh, come, kind of coming in and trying to clean up that oil spill that is the Buffalo Sabers right now, uh, but I I do think that this could work out for Tockett. I I think that uh, you know every year we see it, uh, you know, and you're you, another guy that's going to be out there is John Tortorella. Tockett's a lot younger, <laughs> again had success, uh, doesn't quite have, and I love, I love, uh, you know, I, I love John Tortorello but doesn't quite have, it doesn't have the baggage that Tortorella has sometimes that comes and
2: you with,
0: yeah. 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 But again, I, you know, I, I, know the, I know the view in Pittsburgh of him, but I saw him do a very good job with the blue a young blue jackets team that, that they always say, well, he can't coach young guys. Well, he coached one of the youngest teams in the league for four or five years. But I just have a feeling that Rick Tockett's going to land something pretty good, and it would not surprise me to see him behind a bench as a head coach before Christmas next year. Uh, when we come back, uh, we, as we mentioned, we will be joined by Brian Englund, uh, the TV analyst for the Lightning, and we'll preview uh, Game 7 and, and kind of look at what's gone into the building of the Lightning When we come back here on the 66 to 87 podcast. Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast. And as promised, we are now being joined by Brian Englom, uh, who is the uh, television analyst for the lightning. Uh, you, You know him for years as the uh, an analyst uh, ESPN, seem like, uh, NBCSN has been doing it. And for our younger listeners out there, Brian was a hell of a defenseman back in his day as well. So we are delighted to be joined by Brian. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming on. Um, how surprised were you uh, uh, on Tuesday night that the uh, – the Lightning weren't, or Wednesday night, I'm sorry, uh, the, the Lightning weren't able to hold off uh, the Islanders in games, especially after getting up on that 2 0 lead?
2: Uh, well, to be honest with you, nothing much surprises me anymore. I would <laughs> believe in, any series in today's National Hockey League could go seven games, or one team could win four straight games in overtime, I've <laughs> pretty much seen everything in between. Uh, the Islanders, desperate. The Islanders have a big time chip on their shoulder from having been knocked out of the playoffs last year in game six by the Lightning. So they know how close they were to going to the Stanley Cup finals, for which for a lot of guys uh, is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, so you knew the desperation level was going to be what it was. And I give them a lot of marks because they they did empty the tank. I mean, they came looking for it, they didn't, you know, stumble their way into it. You know, when it comes to having a two-nothing lead. It's I think it's always pretty easy after the fact to, to look at the team that gives it up and say, well, you know, the Lightning, you know, sat back too much. And on the face of it, yeah, it looks like that. I've seen them forecheck better with a lead and spend more time in the offensive zone. I've also seen them sit back and win. And everything looks fine and nobody really complains. So sometimes when you're on the forecheck, check, you get two guys caught and you lose, uh, you give up the lead, you know, with odd man rushes. People will say to you, what the heck were you doing there? You know, why are you looking for more goals? You got caught off the ice and you gave it up. On the other hand, if you sit back and you spend too much time in your own zone, they say, well, why didn't you forecheck? it?" So after the facts, pretty easy. I guess the second one is what happened to them more often. But I have seen them win by being able to shut it down, which is a huge reason that they won the cup last year. They just didn't get it done last night.
0: Yeah, uh, this team, obviously, going back to 2014 Game Seven with the Rangers, they've got a lot of experience in big games. Game Seven, they've been terrific uh, in bounce back games uh, throughout these playoffs and throughout last season's playoffs. But Brian, if if depending on the the status of of Nikita Kucherov, can these guys win with if Kucherov is not in the lineup?
2: Well, sure. I I think they had a lot of practice. Fifty six games this year, unfortunately. Didn't play you know, with him at all. Does he change the game when he's out there? Absolutely. The numbers speak for themselves. He's been phenomenal in these playoffs. And point producer, you know you're going to get at least one point from him. You're going to get five, six, maybe even more great plays that maybe don't end up in the back of the net. But scare the hell out of the opposition. You get all that stuff with Cooch. There's no doubt. If, if he doesn't play, then it means that they have to go back to the way that they played when he wasn't there. Um, it changes the power play for sure. And going into the game without him uh, on the power play, and even though there may only be one or two, hey, these are a lot, there are a lot of one-goal games in, in these playoffs, and that may be the difference. Andre Palat goes in his spot on that side, and he did a hell of a job during the season this year yes. in that spot. That's only one case scenario. Um, but it will be about who's going to transport the puck more. It puts more pressure on Braden Point, no doubt about that. Is he capable of doing that? Yeah. Will he get more attention? I mean, the Islanders aren't stupid. They're going to focus on him. And that means that guys like Palat and Stamkos and Sorelli and Kalor and the guys on the other line, the Ani board line, they'll put more upon themselves to transport the puck more and carry the offense more. Are they capable of doing it? Yeah, they, they certainly are. But this is going to be a really interesting battle, no doubt. We'll keep our fingers crossed that hopefully Cooch can play at least at some level
0: yeah uh, and as, as you mentioned, and as my, as my colleague Dave Mullinary likes to say, uh, both teams are on scholarship here. So the Islanders have certainly uh, done their part. Uh, maybe not a surprise to some. you obviously they, they were in the same position a year ago uh, in the conference final uh, with, with the Lightning. Brian, they're one of the oldest teams in the league, but the way that Barry Trotz plays with the structure and the focus on defense, and as much will as skill is this a team going forward even though they're maybe the oldest or second oldest team in the league can they continue to plug and play guys can this continue under Barry Trotz no matter if some of these guys end up having to be replaced because it seems like he's got he's really on to something over the last three or four years with Washington and now the Islanders
2: yeah he's he's got great tactics that's for sure Um their structure is, is much talked about the interesting about that I haven't looked at it the last day or so to be honest with you but the islanders we talk about the structure and their defensive play they came into this series as the highest scoring team in the playoffs overlooked fact yeah. and yeah. um so now with the lightning I haven't scored eight last game or two games ago maybe that's changed i haven't looked at the total numbers but the islanders can score goals and you know Trotsky is the epitome of co- coaches saying if you stick with the structure you'll get chances and you will score goals and They have proven that, and so they trust what he preaches. Um, Sometimes I think in the course of this series, both teams have been guilty at times of being so much into the structure that they lose battles, they lose their skating ability, and they lose some creativity. There's some very creative guys, and I can speak more for the Lightning guys because I see them every day than the others, but I think most people would agree they have more guys that are creative um, on the lightning to a higher degree than than uh, the New York Islanders have. Having said that, doesn't that doesn't mean everything? You still have to have structure, and believe me, Cooper and his staff preach it as well. But what I've seen is guys start thinking in destinations. Okay, I'm supposed to be here now, and I'm supposed to be there. Then I have to get there. When when you start doing that, a lot of creativity goes out the window, and you stop skating. Your battle level goes down. For me. I would be going, if I'm both coaches, look, they know where to go. You don't have to repeat a whole lot. They'll go over video today. It'll be about, guys, go. Play hard. Battles, battles. Win the battles, win the battles. You know where to go. We'll tweak it along the way if we have to. But play to your strengths. Battle level first. Structure second. It'll work itself out. That's my opinion of the way you have to approach it as a player. Uh,
1: Brian, in in Pittsburgh, Ron Hextall and Brian Burke have made it pretty clear that they would like to get a little bigger and maybe add a little more snarl to their lineup. Um, after Tampa got uh, swept by Columbus in 2019, it seemed like the the uh, lightning went that direction as well, adding guys like Maroon and Coleman and, and Goudreau. How much have of an impact have those guys had on Tampa Bay?
2: Uh, That's a great point, Dave. I would actually even go back further. It's an overlooked point, at least in my mind. You go back to the year before that when they lost in game seven to the Washington Capitals, uh, when Washington went on and won the cup, that was a really rough, heavy series. We know, you know, the Tom Wilson's, we even know Ovechkin, right? Ovechkin runs people. The guy's a machine. I don't know how he does it. But I talked to a couple of the Washington players the next year, and I said, look, it looked to me like in Game 6 and Game 7 that you guys were starting to have an edge on the physical play and maybe the Lightning were backing up a little bit. And I, saw, I got a couple of nods of the head, and they went, uh-huh. We, had a, we felt like we had them in Game 6 and 7. Just keep pounding, just keep pounding, and they won't go into the scoring areas. So it started in that Washington series where I felt like they weren't heavy enough. Then the next year was disappointing. That was more tactics. The players just didn't want to seem to buy into the fact against Columbus that you can't play east-west. You got to play north-south. Get the puck in deep. So that was the next factor. So that certainly stunned them because they were favorite and you lost four games straight. So the the embarrassment factor was gigantic. But management-wise, they went, yes, we've got to get some guys that are bigger and tougher and get back in their face. So enter uh, Luke Shen, Pat Maroon, uh, Zach Bogosian. And it was classic last year against the Islanders. I think it was game four where they had three-on-three staring contest. And, oh, yeah, the lips were moving, too, before the game even started because Braden Point had been run at a couple of times. And Maroon and Bogosian and Shen are going, "Mm mm-mm. It was Matt Martin and Johnson and, I think, Mayfield on the other side. And they're both going, "Mm -mm, not that guy. We are going to do exactly the same thing. We're going to crush your little guys, and you know exactly who it is. This was before the game started. That won them the Stanley Cup, in my mind. Absolutely won them the cup. Now, this year, the Lightning. They're fine. They're happy. In fact, against Carolina, they turned it into a rougher series because they play better, and Carolina doesn't play that way. For me, Carolina's going to have to look at that. They look a little bit like the Lightning did two and three years ago, maybe four. So an excellent team, but something missing there. That's what playoff hockey does to you. So now you've got two teams that absolutely hate each other, and the Islanders and the Lightning, and that's what shows. Neither team is going to back off an inch. And they will smack each other right in the side of the head if they have to. They will play the tactics. It'll come down to battle levels and execution, no doubt. And, of course, always goaltending.
1: Mm-hmm. Sticking with the uh, the Pittsburgh parallels, it's been it's, – it's practically a rite of late winter around here for the Penguins to give up <coughs> high round draft choices for, for immediate roster upgrades, you know, for the – for the stretch drive in the playoffs, uh, Tampa Bay did that this year. gave up its first rounder to Columbus to get David Savard. Has has he been a, a good investment for them so far?
2: He's better now. Um, it took him a while. Uh, I think he's played very well in this series. Up until this series, um, I thought he was he struggled early. Uh, he really had trouble finding his niche. Uh, Columbus plays a very different style than the Lightning, defensively. And he was not comfortable. That was for sure. He played with Victor Hedman early for the first game or so. That did not work well. But on his behalf, Victor Hedman, the first game was against Nashville. They got smoked. And Victor probably had his worst game of the year. Got caught off the ice about five times. It was unfair for Savard. Then they put him with McDonough. That worked well. But the reason he didn't play McDonough with or him with McDonough in the playoffs is because Savard doesn't hold the blue line. Columbus didn't hold the blue line. What they did was funnel back into the middle and get support and cut those east-west plays off. The Lightning like to hold the blue line. They like to jam in the neutral zone and then hold the blue line. When they played against Florida, you knew McDonough was going to play against Barkoff and you can't have just one guy holding the blue line. They both have to. Chernak had played a lot with McDonough. They're very good at it and they held the blue line and they played physical. Savard can play physical, but it's just different. It took him quite a while to get used to it because he's a good passer. He's got good movement to his game. He was on the power play before Seth Jones showed up, if you remember way back in Columbus. He can shoot the puck. He's got some moves. But over the last couple of years, your game gets smaller because other guys are doing that job and you're not a power play guy anymore. So I know it's a long answer, but it's the best way I can give you an overall look of what my view is on David Savard I think the offense is coming his movement and his ease to the game is better and that's huge because we know he knows how to play defense
1: and if we could shift for just a moment to the to the other series uh did you have any idea going back a few weeks that that Montreal could have the kind of success that it has and and be in the position that it's in
2: no, not based on the numbers and the way they had played during the regular season. And to be honest with you guys, I didn't watch as much hockey of that division this year as I normally would because, you know, the, it was the, the intensive schedule and focusing on your own division because you're not even going to play those teams. So to be honest with you, I didn't watch them a ton as the season went along. But I looked at their numbers like everybody does go, oh wow, OK, they made it in the playoffs. Are they going to beat Toronto? Probably not. Although I never thought Toronto was going to get to the finals. That's a different story. Did I think they were going to beat Winnipeg? No, I did not think they were going to beat Winnipeg. And then the whole Shifley thing happened, but they were beating them anyway. And was I surprised? Hell yes. And I'm even more surprised now because no, I did not think they were going to beat Vegas Golden Knights either. That one's not over, obviously, but boy, did they have the forwards of the Golden Knights ever tied up. I mean, my jaw is on the floor watching some of these games going, oh my goodness, I don't even recognize those forwards on Vegas. They haven't played nearly the way they normally do. And all credit to Montreal. Their big defense has made a difference. And it's almost a throwback. It's interesting people's concept of the game. And it's certainly true. You have to have mobility and you need speed. You need the Kale McCars, like Colorado has brilliant young defensemen who can you know really dance with the puck but when the playoffs come around look at montreal and the four guys they play the most big heavy beefy guys that don't let vegas into the scoring area or anybody else they've played against so you have to be able to play more than one way that has always been true in the playoffs and it is absolutely true again this year
0: well good stuff uh very good stuff uh always enjoy catching up with you brian uh and we'll we'll see if those lightning uh finish it off what a great series that's been uh and that is it uh this week for us on the 66 to 87 podcast for our guests brian englum uh dave molinari and the vacationing taylor haas this is tom reed we'll talk to you again next week goodbye everybody